Hello everyone, I'm Jim Santos and this is Bigger Better World from International Living. In this podcast series, we introduce you to a bigger world full of communities that are safe, welcoming, beautiful, and largely undiscovered. A better world, a friendly, warm, great value world where you can live richer, travel more, invest for profit, and enjoy a better life. So let's get started. Hello, and welcome once again to Bigger, Better World. Before we get into today's show, I want to give a shout out to Jennifer, one of our listeners. She's a fan of the show and wrote to say she would like to hear more about single expats who have traveled abroad to work or retire. Well, the good news, Jennifer, is we hope to cover those topics in upcoming episodes. Until then, we're putting a link to a special singles report in the show notes, and there's a Facebook group for single expats as well. Remember, if you have any thoughts or suggestions about what you would like to hear, just send us an email to mailbag at internationalliving.com and put podcast in the subject line. That's mailbag at internationalliving.com. Now on with today's show. When talking about adult beverages enjoyed around the world, if you hear Mexico, you probably first think of beer or tequila. If you think of wine at all in connection with Mexico, it's probably in the form of an ice-cold, fruit-filled pitcher of sangria. But since the 1980s, Mexico's vineyards have been slowly gaining a reputation among wine connoisseurs. In fact, Mexican wines have won several international awards. In 2020, for example, the wine Don Leo Grand Reserva Cabernet Sauvignon won gold in the International Cabernet Competition and the trophy for the world's best Cabernet. Today, over 6,200 acres of vineyards growing red and white grapes are planted in Mexico, and wineries produce over a dozen different types of fine wine. Our guest today is Ann Kuffner, currently living near the heart of one of the three major wine-producing centers in Mexico, in the charming village of San Miguel de Allende in the Central Highlands. Ann is a longtime contributor to International Living and author of the article The Sun-Kissed Wines of San Miguel de Allende, which you can find in the February 2022 edition of International Living magazine. And welcome to Bigger, Better World, and thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Happy to be here, Jim. Good to talk to you. Yeah, now, and when I first met you, uh, you were living in Belize, correct? Yes. Yeah. I think you were a correspondent in Ecuador, and I was the Belize correspondent. How long were you there? Uh, we were there for 10 years. That's that's a long time for expats. It was really, it was a long time, but you know, we had a business there. It, it made sense for us to stick around for a certain period of time until we could sort of extricate ourselves from that business. And then I mm-hmm. took on the role uh, of Belize correspondent, like the last couple of years we were there, they'd never, International Living had not had a Belize correspondent before. I was the first one. And so once I started in that role, I wanted to continue on with it for a number of years and uh, and truthfully, you know, even though um, we were living on a little island for a long time, I I was surprisingly happy doing that because of the fact we had other things going on. Uh, but mm-hmm. as we got a little bit older, you know, as we got into our sixties, we became a lot more concerned about um, you know health issues and having adequate access to good health care and hospitals and things. And, and that was one of the big reasons. That was the main reason we decided to move from there to Mexico, because we were already going to Mexico for most of our health care and, and um, surgeries and things when we needed surgeries. Mm-hmm. And they only have two hospitals in Belize and they didn't have one on the island. Um, so that was like a real big determining factor. But then also the cultural issues of really missing 
you know, when you're on an island like that, it's great if you're an outdoors person, which I used to be a, a really avid scuba diver and snorkeler. But when you get to the point where you've done that, you've seen all the reefs and, and you're getting a little bit older and then right. craving, you know, a little bit more comfort and uh, um, classical things, you know, different types of music and uh, theater and things that we just didn't have at all there. That's the amazing thing here in San Miguel is that you can do it in either language because there's a large enough expat community that quite if and there's a lot of people who are artists, um, you know, either art artists or musicians or um, uh, actors that have started um, different venues here. So there's always quite a few different productions going on in English. And then, of course, there's always the typical ones that you have that are in Spanish as well. So you can you can see either. And it's so there's a matter of fact, there's so much of it that it's kind of hard to pick and choose. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, Mexico is such a large country, uh, so many different options, different living possibilities. What attracted you to the San Miguel de Allende area? When we were living in Belize, we got a chance to do quite a bit of traveling you know, associated with our business and some of the things we were doing. And, I, you know, we also had been to Spain and really liked Spain. One of the things I like about the types of cities in Spain and, and the Latin-based cities is that they have this town square. And um, we loved the Spanish colonial towns we'd been to and the style of being, you know, in Spain and, and kind of um, the southern uh, countries in Europe. And then we, so we started going to some other towns like in South America, and like Cuenca is one of them, actually. Um, mm -hmm. I went to Cuenca on one of the times we were at a conference there um, in Ecuador. And afterwards, I went to Cuenca and I thought, oh, what a what a charming city. And I liked the Spanish colonial style. I liked having the center of town with everything, you know, kind of around it, uh, architecture. And so I said, well, let's try to see more Spanish colonial towns. We went to a number of Spanish colonial towns, just kind of comparing them. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I remember thinking, you know, I could really live in this type of a town and it, we don't really want to move to Europe. In those days, it was very expensive to move to Europe. Now, at least it's more, it's not as expensive. That is an option. But, uh, and it's more complicated to get your residency though, you know, in the EU. Right. But I thought, I like the style of Spanish colonial. And so did my husband. He really loves architecture. And so I said, let's just keep visiting Spanish colonial towns. And we went to see quite a few. And then we used to go to Merida a lot. That's where we did our medical care in Mexico when we were living in Belize. It wasn't that far to get there. So actually, San Miguel was like on the last one on the list. And because a lot of people had discouraged me and said, oh, it's so expensive and there's so many expats there. And so I was a little bit discouraged. But when I started doing research, I thought, wow, it sounds like a really neat city. We need to go visit. And we came here, I'd already done a lot of research, and we just immediately fell in love with it. Pretty much knew the first time we were here that we were probably going to move here. It, it just mm -hmm. ticked all the boxes for us. Where we live now in San Miguel, there's like two or three hospitals within like a five-minute drive from our home. And we're an hour from Caretro, where there's all types of big, fancy hospitals and specialists and um, and then, you know, the music, there's classical music, there's jazz, there's Latin music, there's anything you want, rock and roll, live bands, um, there's theater, and then dancing. For us, dancing is a big thing. And we found out that the only Arthur Murray studio in all of Mexico was in San Miguel de Allende. We went to check it out, I think, on our very first trip here. And we were like, oh, my gosh, this is I almost felt like 
it's like being in the Bay Area where we were for so many years on a smaller scale with a lot of the same amenities, but so much less expensive and with the beauty of being a European town. Yeah, it hit. And then also, you know, I didn't even find out till later that they had a lot of wineries here, that this is an up and coming wine region and there's a lot of organic farms here. So it was so it's been so much easier for us to get good, healthy food at a good price since we've moved here. And also to access high quality wines for, you know, approximately half the cost of what we would have paid in Belize. And you're no stranger to wine. Uh, you mentioned the California Bay Area in the, the article. You said you've, you lived there for 40 years. Yeah, when I was in my 20s and I had first moved from Detroit uh, to San Francisco. And then, you know, I transferred over to Berkeley and um, finished my degrees at Berkeley. Uh, my friends and I, you know, those were the hippie days. And we would all pile into a VW Bug on a Sunday and one person would be the designated driver and we would go to Napa. And this is when it was still free to wine taste. And we'd hit, right. we would hit like, you know, as many wineries as we could and stay sober. And then we'd go buy some, you know, salami and cheese and a bottle of wine and sit out in, in the plaza in St. Helena. And uh, mm. that was like a day of entertainment for us. So, you know, over those years that I was in the Bay area, I watched this fledgling wine industry that was not reputable at that time turn into this, you know, mega industry that's now very reputable and, and outrageously expensive to go wine tasting there. And now in this area of Mexico, you kind of find yourself in the same position. It's an area that, uh, although wine has been produced there for something like 500 years, the, the actual wine industry is relatively young in that area. Well, you know, it, it's funny because it varies a lot by region here. And um, the wines, I mean, I actually love the history. When I when I was getting ready to write this article, I did quite a bit of review of the history. And the history here in Mexico and uh, in this region in Guanajuato is really very interesting. And yes, you know, there have been some vineyards here in Mexico since like the 1500s. It's when the, you know, the conquistadors came and they brought the priests with them and the priests brought the vines with them so that they could plant, you know, vineyards in order to have grapes to make wine for the misas, for the mass, right? Mm -hmm. That was right. the beginning of it. But there were only certain areas where that started. And the most famous uh, actually is uh, Casa de Madero, which in Co is in Coahuila, which is about five hours north of here. And that is the oldest vineyard in all of uh, the Americas. Now here in Guanajuato, the first vines were planted, I think, in the, the 1700s. And that was when uh, Hidalgo, Father Hidalgo was here, kind of tied to the revolution here. And Hidalgo and um, Allende were the two that started that fight for freedom against Spain. I think I read, in fact, that King of Spain made wine production illegal in Mexico for a while. Yes. And there's it's it's kind of like I said, it's very interesting history because the wealthy Spaniards who were in Spain who had been sending wine here didn't want um, the wine to be grown locally. That, so there were a couple of different issues. That was one of the issues is that they wanted to continue to get paid to send the wine here. But Hidalgo had started growing vines in Dolores Hidalgo, which is about an hour from here. Hidalgo, um, he was a very, um, very smart priest and, and very adaptable. And so he was growing the vineyards and also um, olive groves and things. And he trained the locals, the criollos in, in Mexico, the criollos 
are people who are half Spanish blood and half mestizo blood, right? And he trained those people who were fairly poor how to grow the, you know, grow the grapes and make wine and grow uh, olives. And they were very appreciative of that. And um, when Hidalgo started preparing for the revolution <laughs> against the Spaniards, <laughs> these people who he had trained, I mean, some of the money they were making, they were donating it to his cause. Right. <laughs> so when the Spaniards found out about that, it didn't take them long to show up. And they actually burned all of the vines mm. in Guanajuato. So it's interesting because as far as I can tell, the vineyards that are in Baja never got burned down. And the ones that are in Coahuila, uh, they they all survived that this, uh, that revolution. But here, because that revolution started here, mm-hmm. I think um, the Spaniards, there were repercussions from the Spaniards immediately. And it wasn't until 1995 uh, that the owner of the property where Cunha de Tierra is now the oldest vineyard in this area, that he looked at the history and realized that the land that he had, that he owned, that he was farming on, would be very good for grape growing. And eventually, this became the Vega Manchon Vineyard, and it's the most reputable vineyard now in this region, the Cunha de Tierra. They started growing grapes in 1995 and started producing wines in the early 2000s, and they've won quite a few awards for their wines. But it's kind of amazing when you think that here, this was like in the 1700s when they first started growing grapevines here, and then it was burnt down and they didn't start again until 1995 Mm -hmm. at that one vineyard. Now, there's at least 15 vineyards here in this region within an hour of San Miguel. And there every day, you know, there's more that are starting up. And then there are quite a few in Cristado de Cretero, which is only about an hour from here. And I haven't even been to many of those at all. I'm still exploring the ones that are near here. And the region of Guanajuato, the Estado of Guanajuato, has really committed to putting a lot of energy into growing this business because it's a great business. It's uh, amenable to tourism. And the reality is, is that the grapevines require a lot less water than the other uh, food crops that are grown here. Yeah, I have to confess, I know nothing about wine myself. You know, I, I use it for cooking. And, you know, in a trip to Italy, I definitely found that there's a big difference in a lot of wines. But, you know, I couldn't even come close to calling myself a connoisseur. But one thing I have heard is that to grow really good grapes, you need to have hills where there's an airflow of different temperatures down at a lot of microclimates. It seems like that region that you're in there is is really well suited. For yeah, that. because I came from California and I had quite a good knowledge of what it was in California that made for good grapes and good wine. It's so different here that what part of the reason it took me a long time to find out about the wineries and the good wines here is because I just assumed that you wouldn't be able to grow good grapevines here, partly because we're at such a high altitude. I mean, we're at the same altitude as Denver. We're like a mile high. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in the Bay Area and Napa Valley, you don't get any rain pretty much until um, October, November. So the whole grape growing season is a dry season. But the temperatures vary a lot. You know, in the day, it's really warm. And in in the evening, you get the fog and it cools it off. So you have that and you have a lot of of microclimates in the Bay Area because of the fog and, you know, where the vineyards are in association with the bay and the fog. And so you can have a totally different taste of the same wine, the same grape from one little micro region to another. 
Now here it rains like crazy in the summer. So, you know, in if you look in Europe and you look in California, as soon as they want to get the grapes cut and into production before the rains start, because otherwise you get mold on the skin and it can ruin the wine or you have to make something like in, in uh, Germany, they make ice vines, which are noble rot. But in most of the wines that are made, if if the grapes get wet, it's going to ruin the wine. You can't, you know, you can't produce with that wine, with those grapes. But here, the difference is, first of all, the soil is extremely porous. So even if it's raining hard, the water drains. And then it can rain mainly at night. It rains here. And then during the day, it dries. It's so dry, very low humidity. And so the skins dry very quickly and they don't get moldy. And the sun is very intense here. It's hotter here. Well, it's probably similar to Napa Valley gets really hot in the summer, but, you know, it can get up to the high 80s and low 90s and, um, you know, May through August here. And what that does is that actually the intensity of the sun and um, the extreme temperatures and the, the low humidity make those grape skins get thick and tough. So they're, they don't get moldy. They dry off very quickly and they create really intense flavors. And there's a lot of um, mineral content in the soil. So there's more of a mineral flavor to some of the wines. Like the white wines I've had here, they have a very distinctive, you know, mineral flavor. The ones that are out there um, in Dolores Hidalgo, uh, at Cunha de Tierra, it's really distinct. So it's it's really, it works for totally different reasons than it works in the Bay Area or in Europe which was very interesting to me. And they also do have microclimates here as well. At Cunha de Tierra, I think they had three different types of terrars there, so three different soils. And so they they grow different types of grapes in the different areas there. They also have hot springs. And one of the wineries we went to, Tres Raices, actually gets their groundwater you know, from a hot spring area. They put it into a big pond and let it cool off, and then they use it to irrigate, and it's got a lot of minerals in it. So that also kind of has an impact on the flavor. So it's interesting. Uh, It was so different than what I had expected. It's been a lot of fun learning about it. Yeah, the wineries that you wrote about in the article, they all seem to have their own little distinctive quirks and and flavors. I I was going to ask you about the Torres Reyes, because that sounded interesting using the hot springs Mm -hmm. to apply a little taste to that. And the Cuna de Tierra, which you were also just talking about, which I believe means cradle of earth, which I just love. That's a great name. (laughs) It is. It's tied to the revolution and and Dolores Hidalgo is where the revolution started against Spain. And so that's part of why they called it Cuna de Tierra, the the cradle of birth for Mexico. That makes sense now that you uh, told me some of that history, because from your description of it in the article, it seems like they were very serious about their wine. Uh, at that winery oh, yeah. and about the food. There was a lot yes. of attention to detail. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cunha de Tierra has actually won quite a few awards. And um, it's an interesting winery. It's won awards for the architecture there, which has a Mayan influence. And it's won awards for quite a few of their wines, longer than any other of the vineyards here in this area. They probably don't have as many awards as the ones in Baja, just because Baja has been around for a much longer time. Mm-hmm. Uh, in their their major production. But the other thing is that these wineries here are small. They're boutique-type wineries. None of them are mass production. So it's a totally different thing than my understanding of what you have in Baja or even Queretaro. We did go to um, one winery uh, in Queretaro about a year and a half ago, and it was uh, um, uh, Frick Snap. 
And when we went there, I was really disappointed because I had been going to the vineyards here in Guanajuato that they're so intimate and very small groups and really personalized and, you know, very reasonably priced, uh, pretty easy to set up uh, a wine tasting and then go have a meal there at uh, Freaksnet. It was like a mass production. It was more like California where you've got hordes of people coming through every hour they have a tour, you know, and there's like maybe uh, 20, 30 people in the tour. It's, it's, you know, it's nothing, it's not intimate the way it is here. That's part of what I really love about going to the wineries here is that it seems very, you know, it is very intimate and small and like, you know, personal families run them for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Tres Reyes, you mentioned, also has a boutique hotel and it's it's a wedding venue as well. Yes, uh, most of these wineries are trying to move in that direction because they're in such, most of them they're, are in really lovely areas with great views especially Tres Raices, it's not far from town. It's about a half hour from town, but it feels like a world away from being in San Miguel. You know, like this last weekend for Easter, oh my gosh, it was like totally full here. Absolutely nutso. You've got all the processions going on and and the recreation of the, you know, uh, Jesus carrying the cross through town and all of that from one church to another and people coming in from all over to witness these um, special activities. Then, you know, we went to... Uh, Vineto San Miguel to eat in the afternoon. I mean, it was so peaceful and quiet out there, and it's not even a half an hour away from San Miguel. So uh, almost all the wineries are moving in the direction of um, having like a boutique type hotel so that you can actually stay there in the vineyard, spend the night, you know, have a night. And the other thing is then you can have a nice meal and and drink a little bit right. <laughs> without having to worry to drive back to town or whatever. And then wake up in the morning to this gorgeous view in the vineyard and have a really nice breakfast and then go do your activities for the day. And I'm actually been wanting to go stay at Tres Raices, even though we're only half hour away. One of these Maybe this summer we'll spend a night there just to spend the night and and have a nice breakfast and then go do something, you know, be closer to go to some other activities uh, near Dolores Hidalgo then. Now, one of the wineries that you talked about seemed really interesting to me, uh, the Rancho Toyan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. seemed really fascinating, even if you're not that into wine like myself. You describe it as a a medieval setting. Yes, that is the most quirkiest otherworldliest winery that I've ever been to in my life. And I've been to quite a few. I think the people who own it, I mean, by the way, I don't think they have very good wines. (laughs) (laughs) I would recommend for people to go just to see it because it's so wild. And it's a a family from Mexico City that had this dream. And I think they're very spiritually oriented, you know, kind of new agey. And so, and they also were trying to recognize, but the way that they built it in the design was to recognize the role of the priests and the nuns and how they brought, you know, the grapes and to Mexico. And they were the ones that get the credit for that, basically, and the, the role of the Catholic Church in it. Now, these people, I don't get the sense they're very Catholic, but they're very much into symbolism. And they have all of these kind of medieval gargoyles, like over every row of vines, they have a gargoyle or a little angel or something, like supposedly protecting it. And they have all kinds of statues on the building. It really does look medieval. And then when you go inside, there's a steep walkway that goes down into a cellar. And it's really dark. I mean, I had a hard time, truthfully, my eyes aren't that great. 
And I'm like, had my hands on the wall walking down there because it's very dimly lit. Once again, it feels like you're going into one of these castle dungeons when you're in Europe. And then they have these sconces in the wall with, you know, once again, either little monks or, you know, weird animals. And then you get down to the bottom and it's very dark. They do an interesting uh, wine tasting with food. And we did that in their cellar. And it's like, everything is like this blue lit, lit, lit. <laughs> there's blue lights everywhere. And it takes your eyes a while to adjust. And then you look over and you realize you're, like you're sitting below this huge monk, this like 12 foot tall monk looking down at you. <laughs> that sounds like my kind of place. I like oh, that. it was just so quirky, but it was really beautiful. You know, but what they, the other thing they do is like, they've got their own philosophy about wine. And they, rather than, you know, if you do normal wine tastings, you start with the lightest white and you go to the rosé and then you go to the light red and you go to the dark red. They do it exactly the opposite. They start with the darkest red and move in the opposite direction. I don't remember their rationale for doing that, but it was some, you know, kind of aesthetical reasoning that they had. I didn't like most of their wines, although the Pinot Noir was pretty good. Pinot Noir is my favorite red overall. Uh, and I bought a bottle or two of that. And I'm very sorry <laughs> to report that a month or two later when we opened it, it was bad. <laughs> it had gone bad already. Did not travel well. Well, it only had to travel a couple <laughs> miles. <laughs> but I wouldn't I wouldn't buy their wines personally. But it's fun to go there and have a wine tasting because, you know, it's not expensive to do a wine tasting like a little platter at any of these places. I mean, I don't think we paid more than $50 per person in any wine tasting. Well, maybe one. I think the one we did at, at Cunha di Chiara was $90 each, but it was for a complete meal with, right. with wines. So we did a tasting of five wines with a complete gourmet meal and the tour. So, you know, that was not unreasonable because I, I couldn't eat all the food that they gave us. But if you just do a wine tasting with a cheese plate, it's typically in the range of 20 to $40 a person, which is very reasonable for what you get. Yeah, and I should mention that in that article in the February 2022 edition of International Living, you provided websites for each of yes. the, the the ones under discussion here so that people could check it out and, and make their arrangements. And it seems like there's just a wild variety because the, the next one you talked about in San Miguel seemed like the complete opposite of the Rancho Toyen, rather than the medieval approach, it was you said it was a very modern wine. Yeah, the the that's the Rancho Toyen is the only one that's like that. As I think, like I said, if I were to tell you all the places I've been in California and all the places I've been here in Mexico, that's the only place I've seen like that. I've also done some tastings in Europe, and and I haven't seen anything like that in Europe. But I haven't done as many there. Right. But it was it was very quirky. And the funny thing is, the first place we went to, uh, Dos Bujos, is practically it's like within a half a mile of Toyen. And Dos Bujos is like organic wines and very very casual, tiny little place, family run, complete opposite of Toyen. Mm -hmm. And then where we went yesterday, uh, where we had our Easter dinner yesterday, um, Vinedo San Miguel. Yeah, that is a very, it's also fam It's also owned by a family, though. All these places are pretty much family owned and operated, but a lot of them are families that had other businesses where they were very successful, and then they decided to expand and try their hand in the wine business. But uh, Vinedo San Miguel, it's really fancy. Do you have a favorite local wine? Well, I would say my favorite vineyard is Tres Raices. And I like a number of their wines. They vary from year to year. 
right now. Their Tempranillo is probably my favorite. It's a, are you familiar with Tempranillo? No, not at all. It's a red wine. Um, to me, it's a little bit like a cross between a, a Pinot Noir and a Zinfandel, you know, coming from California. You see, I, I told you I know nothing. They're, they're red or white or pink. That's about the extent. Well, that's of why I, I was changing yeah. how much description <laughs> I go into based upon how much you know. Yeah. I'm <laughs> trusting that our listeners are way more sophisticated than I am. <laughs> well, Tempranillo it, the, uh, normally comes from Spain. The name Tempranillo would be from Spain, a red grape from Spain. At least that's the way I remember it. But it it varies a lot. It has a real range. It can be weak. It can be strong. The one that they make at Tres Raices that I've had is pretty robust and it has a lot of berry, but not sweet. Like I really like Zinfandels, but some of the Zinfandels coming out of California now are like just almost syrupy sweet to me. I like a a Zinfandel that's robust, but it has like an essence of berry to it. And to me, the Tempranillo from Tres Raices is like that, but I've been trying to find it now. Some of these local wines are being sold at the fancy big grocery store near us called City Market. It's like the fanciest markets that they have in uh, Mexico. Mm -hmm. And they carry local wines, but I have not been able to find any of that Tempranillo. So I think it's pretty popular. I think it just, you know, it's a small production and when it's gone, it's gone. So I haven't been able to get any for the last six months. They're selling other wines uh, from there. Um, I had a really nice, actually white wine yesterday, just a Blanc wine at um, Vigneto San Miguel. And normally they don't make a lot of white wines here. They don't grow a lot of whites. The soil here supposedly is better for red grapes. And uh, although Cunha de Tierra does do a 100% semillon, which is super, super bone dry, that's the one that has a lot of mineral flavor to it. That seems to do pretty well here. But a lot of times they just mix Chardonnay and semillon. And this one I had yesterday, I was, I was very pleased with it because I you know, I like white wines as much as I like red wines. And Cunha de Tierra, they have a couple that are award-winning that are super robust, like their Paga. I think it's called Paga de Viega, Paga de Vega. It's a it's pricey. It's the kind of wine that you know you'd only buy for Christmas or something. It's about thirty-five dollars a bottle, uh, but it's really nice. It's very robust. It's a blend. I don't remember what all the grapes are in there, but that one's won awards. And locally here, another grape that's very popular that does well is the Nebbiola. And that's a super strong Italian grape. It's not my favorite. You know, it's a little bit too strong for me, but a lot of people love it. And it grows really well here. You were asking me about my favorite wines, but I wanted to say that Tres Raices is still my favorite winery for a variety of reasons. First of all, the architecture is just stunning. It's um very, they've, they've combined modern and historical concepts together. It has like this lattice work on the outside of the building that's that has a representation of a lot of the, um, the history that's been incorporated. Whoever created this um, worked with the owners to incorporate a lot of um, concepts that, you know, if you don't take a tour, you don't understand what it means. You just know that it's beautiful setting, gorgeous setting, and with foothills all around it. Uh, really pretty. 
Uh, it's easy. You know, you can kind of go into the main building and do a tour and you don't even have to do a tour. You can walk around the vineyard on your own, which we do quite often because we did the tour ages ago. And now every time we go out there, we take friends or family and we'll give them a tour. We know enough about it. Uh, they also have that hot springs. I mentioned to you that they pump the water into the hot spring pond and let it cool and use it to irrigate. But part of what I like about um, Tres Raices is they have a really nice selection of different types of wine tastings and events. Mm -hmm. So, and they have a beautiful big, you know, tasting area. And uh, in my experience, the people that work there that do the tastings, they have quite a few of them and they're very knowledgeable. And so you could do a tasting that's a mix of white and red wines. You could do a three uh, wine tasting or a five wine tasting or a seven wine tasting. You can do it with or without a cheese plate. The first time we went, we did, I think, a five wine tasting with a cheese plate. And then afterwards, we went to the restaurants right there. And we were too full from the cheese plate to eat very much. So now we typically, you know, if we do a tasting, we'll do a, a small tasting with just bread on the side, and then we'll go to the restaurant. The restaurant will do, um, you have your choice of ordering off the menu and ordering any of the wines that they have by the glass, or you can do a, they have a couple options for doing paired tastings with meals that are really nice. And I feel like all of it is reasonably priced. So for me, if you go on the website at Tres Raices, you have so many different options to choose from that even if somebody, if somebody's a neophyte, they can go with something simple. If somebody a, a, has a sophisticated palate, they can even do a class, you know, on how the wines are made. They have a couple of different classes like that, a one-day class for people who are a little more sophisticated. Or you can go directly to the restaurant and uh, do a paired uh, meal with wine tastings. So I really like that about Tres Raices. And I have to say, um, when we went yesterday to Vinedo San Miguel, we didn't do the tasting. We've done that before. We just had a meal there. They also do one or two options of a meal paired with wines. But there, they have a fantastic menu. And then you can order any glass of wine that they, you know, any wine that they're producing there. And what I did is I kind of wanted to test it yesterday since we hadn't done this before. And I said, okay, you've got like maybe eight different wines and these are the ones I'm interested in, but I can't drink them all. Can I have a taste of each of them? And so the guy brought out bottles and he let me taste four different wines before I picked one. And each of the people in our party tried a couple different wine tastes at no extra charge before they picked what glass they want, what glass of wine that they wanted to have. Mm -hmm. So that was really fun because we were basically getting a free wine tasting with our dinner. <laughs> the difference is that this guy who was giving it to us, I mean, he couldn't explain everything. You know, he's not a, he wasn't trained to do that. That was really clear because he gave me a taste of the red wine before the white wine. I'm like, okay, that's not the way you're supposed to do it. But it was free. So I wasn't going to complain. <laughs> I think if you, come, if you come here, you should definitely go to one of those two or both. And then Cunha Tierra is further out. It's beautiful, but it's a little, it's like an hour to get to Cunha Tierra. So I would say for people who are really serious about wine that they'd probably want to go to Cunha de Tierra, but for people who just want a really nice environment, you know, a nice afternoon, a little wine tasting, a nice meal with a group that my favorites would be Tres Raices and uh, Viñedo San Miguel. How do you think these um, wines in Mexico compare to the more traditional wines like from Italy or France or Spain? Well, they're the, you know, the, the, um, 
vines were brought mainly from Spain and uh, from France. So the original vines brought here, that's where they came from. They all came from Europe. And then uh, Cunha de Tierra started importing vines from California as well. So all of the all everything that's growing here is basically it's coming initially from Europe and or California and blends. But you can take the same grape and the same vine and plant it in a different environment and have a quite different result. It can be really different based upon how you blend those grapes. Um, but you know the climate and the soil are I think are so different from here than in Europe. And truthfully, the Pinot Noir that's that's done in um, France is so completely different than Pinot Noir in California. The Pinot Noirs in France are very, very dry, whereas the ones in California, ha- they taste like cherry, you know. So, yeah, it's it's quite different. Like I said, that Tempranillo comes from a grape that's a Spanish grape. But to me, it tasted way different than what I would get in a ba- uh, bottle of Spanish red wine. But they're all good. I mean, I like them all. <laughs> I do like wine. <laughs> I mean, I've been drinking wine for quite a few years. <laughs> I think it comes across that you're rather enthusiastic about the subject here. Well, we've been chatting with Ann Kuffner, author of the February 2022 article, Sunkissed Wines of San Miguel de Allende. And Ann, my wife and I have been thinking about visiting the Corredero and San Miguel for quite a while now. And you've certainly given us uh, several more tasty reasons to explore. Uh, Thanks for joining us on uh, Bigger, Better World. My pleasure. It was fun. The Bigger, Better World podcast is a production of International Living. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. If you have an idea for an episode or a question you'd like us to answer, email us at mailbag at internationalliving.com. And don't forget to put podcast in the subject line of your email. That's mailbag at internationalliving.com. We created Bigger, Better World to help showcase the ideas we explore at International Living each month and grow our community of travel lovers, expats, and experts who believe, as we do, that the world is full of opportunity to create a more interesting, more international life. You don't have to be rich or famous to do that. You just need to know the secrets. And that's what we bring you at International Living. If you haven't become a member yet, you can do it today with a special discount offer for podcast listeners. You'll receive our monthly magazine plus a bundle of special extras. You'll find the link in our show notes, or you can go to intliving.com slash podcast. That's intliving.com slash podcast. Be sure to tune in next week when lifestyle editor Sean Keenan will be giving us a sneak preview of upcoming articles about his recent trip to a couple of the islands of Greece. Thanks again for listening to Bigger, Better World. I'm Jim Santos for International Living, and I'll see you next week. So until then, remember, there's a bigger, better world just waiting for you. you.